Good morning to me. Good evening to you. Yeah, absolutely. How is it going? Oh, good. Our big heat wave has finally subsided. Oh, it, cool. Yeah, it, it went on forever, but I guess yours as well. I mean... Not really. Where I am on the Isle of Man, I'm freezing oh. my, I'm freezing my butt off, right? So yeah, no, I, I wish, I wish I had some warmth, but uh, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't seem to be doing it for me at the moment. Okay. But anyway, so hey, this is our second episode, our second chat about the state of the human animal. Yeah, yeah. So are you kind of ready to jump right into it? Oh yeah. Um, whatever you. Uh... Wherever you want to start, I'm happy to to play along. Cool, man. Well, you know, I was thinking uh, what might be beneficial in this round is, you know, drawing from your experience and mine. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I'll talk about is just my own personal experience is discussing some of the things that we can do to aid us in this kind of chaotic false kind of environment that we find ourselves in, right? Because we all, most of us, um, especially in the Western world, are living in urbanized environments. We are detached from nature. And uh, so sometimes that whole experience can be completely overwhelming, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm happy to talk about um, any kind of solutions that we can, uh, we can generate. Uh, and I always start with the, the three rings of life support that surround the human body. So we talk about habitat, talk about people, community, and then narrative, culture, and meaning. So we can, we can start anywhere. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's important, right? I mean, I think so much of us don't realize how much our environment informs our behavior, how much, you know, the kind of environment that we live in is impacting both our mental health and our well-being overall. Right. You, um, and, and this is something that veterinarians know full well. I mean, you change the, the setting that the animal lives in and you're going to change their behavior and their health. It's uh, context is really important for all creatures. Mm. So one of the things that I kind of um, been finding of late, because as you know, I'm doing some research. I'm working on my master's by research focused on eco-psychology or eco-therapy. Right. And it's very evident as I'm talking to many of the practitioners around the world. So these are people who actually take people into nature that most people are completely unaware of how much and how much detriment there is to the way that they've been living in urbanized environments until they actually go out in nature and have an experience reconnecting with the natural world. And then suddenly there is this aha moment where they start to recognize that much of their dis-ease is not necessarily stemming from them, but really that the environment that they find themselves in and the environment that they have to try to cope in, right? The, the, you know, what's typically called the kind of VUCA environment, right? It's, it's volatile, it's uncertain, it's complex, you know, and it's really difficult for people to kind of separate that out until they have something like an experience where they're going to the natural world. And then they realize, oh, hold on a second. Actually, much of what I've been struggling with is really the environment that I found myself in. Right. I, uh, well, you may remember this uh, bit of research that was done called Rat Park. And the fellow's name is Bruce Alexander. And he was a young researcher. He looked at studies of addiction and he realized that most of the studies had been done on individual rats that were housed in cages. And his, his take on that, he says, well, how can you trust those results? Because these, these animals are living in an alien environment and it's not really surprising that they would become addicted to these substances that you give them. So he built in his laboratory a big plywood enclosure that was later called Rat Park, and it had all the cool stuff that rats enjoy. Uh, other rats, things to play with, all kinds of stuff. And then he introduced the so-called addictive substances, and the rats did not become addicted, at least not at the same rate. 
So Bruce Alexander goes even further with this. He says that um, the original sin of modern psychology was to look at individuals in isolation. And what he's like, we have to be looking at, at the context that they live in. Yeah, I think that's super powerful. So I guess, you know, coming back to my original idea was, what are some of the things that a person can do to help them navigate this world that they find themselves that is unnatural? You know, if we, you know, again, not to kind of reiterate stuff that we've talked about before, but for the longest time in human history, we were hunter-gatherers. And this experience that we're experiencing now that we term the modern world is a very small moment in time in the history of mankind. So, no, you know, the bottom line is people can't just go off and go and live like hunter-gatherers. I mean, it would be nice if we could do that, but it's really difficult for most people. So the question then is, well, if I have to, quote-unquote, live in the matrix, so to speak, right, how do I orient myself in that environment to at least as best as possible as possible negate many of the mental health issues that we see on the rise. So things like anxiety, depression, I'd even put in there loss of meaning as something that's yeah, yeah. prevalent these days. So just a couple of points from my side, love to hear yours as well. But for sure, one of the things that I try to, and this is what I try to do in my own life. I've recognized that you know, just in my own personal experience in studying psychology, it does seem to me that we have really made things as difficult as we possibly can for ourselves, right? In the sense that if you think about even psychology, there are so many different methods or approaches to dealing with a specific situation, right? Dozens of different variations. So we've made the search for you know, inner success very difficult because where does a person start, right? There's all these different approaches. Everybody's saying that their approach is the correct approach, you know, depending, of course, on, on what you're dealing with. So one of the things that I try to do always is I try to remind myself to embody a simplified thinking process. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is, is that if I'm faced with an obstacle, what is the simplest solution that I can find to overcome this problem that I'm facing right now. And if I find myself coming up with some kind of complex answer, then I know that that's, first of all, going to be very difficult to apply and right. more than likely is the wrong solution. What do you think of that? Oh, yeah. The, the modern world, one of the symptoms, I, I suppose, is this complexification of just about everything. Mm. And we see it in domains where we don't really need it at all. For example, exercise and meditation are both things that are inherently simple and that can be grasped by pretty much anyone. Any animal should be able to do these things. But we we have all these different styles now and research projects and everything to tease out various nuances. And it just makes it difficult for everybody. And so we get lost in what you might call data smog. There's just too much of this uh, information. So recognizing that we can't go back to the paleo and that we can't go back to a hunter-gatherer level of existence, we can simplify and avoid some of this complexity. If you're meditating, just sit down, shut up, and pay attention. That's that's as simple as it can be, right? And if you are exercising or what I call movement, make that as simple and functional as you possibly can. That's why I, I tend to avoid the machines. I prefer the medicine ball, that type of thing. So simpler is almost always better. Yeah, and what I hear you saying there is, in a nutshell, is get, learn to get high on your own supply, right? Without <laughs> having kind of external things that you need in order to get there, right? Is that actually we don't give ourselves enough credit that how intelligent, intelligent this actual system is. You know, when, right. when I talk about mind, most people immediately go to, oh, that must be what's between your ears, right? This gray matter in your head. 
And I have to explain to them, no, that's not what I mean by mind. I mean, mind as in all of you, as an embodied experience within the world. And then it extends to other beings, right? Because, you know, in my, my perspective is that, you know, when we talk about mind, we talk about obviously the mind that I embody, but we also extend that mind. And so my point is, is that it really is about coming back to a simplified experience where we achieve success based on our own volition without having to reach for other aids to accomplish the same goals. Right. And this reminds me of what I call plastic narratives that are cooked up to tell us how to live. And these are always in service of selling some particular product or service. And they always always start with seven steps. (laughs) Sure. Yeah, yeah. But these, these narratives that we consume are... They're very much like fast food. They are highly palatable and we like to consume them, but they tell us how to live. And now we're captive of a particular narrative that's not really our own. And that's that's what's really dangerous. So we, we either have to come up with our own personal narratives to guide us, or we need to listen to authentic voices, tribal elders who can help us generate authentic narratives as well. So yeah, don't get trapped in a, in a plastic narrative. I think you made an important point there. I mean, we know this, that through research, that the human brain is a prediction machine, right? It's always trying to predict what's going to happen next. And so if you present the human brain with a step-by-step process that seems, you know, if you do, like I said, seven steps to everything, right? So if you do these seven steps, you'll achieve success. The human brain immediately latches onto that because what it doesn't like is it doesn't like something that's ambiguous, right? right? Something that's hard to grasp. But actually, it's not really that hard to grasp if you want to improve your current state, the current state of your human animal. I mean, as we're saying that actually, it really is about simplifying things, right? Coming back to the the simple approaches to things, where can you bring yourself into this experience without using other aids? And that's really what you're saying, right? Right. Yeah. There's an advertisement going in my community now about the the most high-tech mattress you could imagine. You know, it's got heat sensors and movement sensors and Bluetooth integration and everything else. And you could just lay down and go to sleep i mean that would be much simpler so we make everything tougher now and yeah because we don't look after ourselves in a natural way and we basically trying to get through the world with all these unnatural aids you know be it you know obviously there's a place for medication but oftentimes people are taking things that they don't need to be taking and so it disrupts that kind of equilibrium the homeostatic state in their body so then no wonder when they want to go and you know lie down and sleep everything aches and they can't get to sleep and so then it's an opportunity for you know those marketers to sell something like that like the bed that you just described right and this always takes me back to this idea of medicalization mm-hmm. of modern society and a fellow named Ivan Illich. Uh, he was a, he was a writer back in, I believe the 1980s who wrote a lot about education and medicine. And his point was that this proliferation of modern medical techniques is actually disempowering the human animal. Because if you're waiting around for some expert to fix every little ache and pain or every little part of your human experience, then you stop relying on your innate powers. And that's for me, is a really interesting idea. Yeah, I mean, even today, just that you say that I'm, I'm doing uh, some, some reading around clinical and uh, counseling psychology. Mm-hmm. And I really you know, enjoyed the person that I was listening to because her, her kind of you know, summary was, look, we have this, this process, the medicalization of you know, mental health, but mm-hmm. the truth is much of it doesn't actually work. It really doesn't work. And even the science shows that you know, the, the, the improvements are marginal, right? Where right. you could do something, when we talk about simplifying, right? You could do something as simple as finding a space, that, a natural space, you know, in the natural world to go and take a walk. Now that, of course, if you don't have a forest 
or a woodland or something close to you. It can be, you know, a space that's been created like a park or something within an urban environment, but even that's good enough, right? And it's been shown that going into that experience and reconnecting with nature has a profound effect on your sympathetic nervous system. Now, for the people that don't know that, that's your fight and flight response. Most people are running what I call hot all the time. They have Mm -hmm. sympathetic dominance, means that their parasympathetic nervous system, which is the calming side of the autonomic nervous system, isn't working optimally, right? (laughs) Right. One way to bring that back in line and to be homeostatic and have your parasympathetic nervous system actually be optimal is literally going to take a walk in nature. Right. And that's, you know, if people need the science for that, it's very, very easy to go and do a Google search and they will find enormous amount of information to basically prove what I just said is correct, right? Is that actually it's shown, you know, in so many different studies that just taking a a walk in nature has a profound positive effect on your immune system, on your you know, parasympathetic nervous system increases, like I said, and so forth, right? And lowers, you know, tension and anxiety. So just that, a simple thing of taking a walk is, is, can be the difference between becoming healthier or not. Right. And I think one of, the, one of my observations about our lives in the modern world is that we are, very many of us, are addicted to stimulation. We want more stimuli all the time. And I'm not sure why that is, but when we go into nature now, everything is moving slower and we get to let go of that stimulation, that chronic stimulation, and the body feels more at home if you will, mm. that, that's our, that's our ancestral pattern for being in those natural regions. So yeah, slowing, simplifying and slowing down are like the two biggest things we can do. So amazing that you said that, cause that was going to be my next point, right? I was going to say outside of simplifying the way that you think and finding simple solutions to complex problems. The other thing that people can do is learn to slow down. You know, everything doesn't need to be a race, right? You know, if you answer that email now or in an hour's time, it literally, for the most part, is not going to be the end of the world, right? So learning to slow down is is crucial. I guess for a lot of people, it's like, well, you say slow down, you know, Rodney and Frank, how do you, how do you slow down? How do you start? Right. So one of the things that I do, it's just a really cool practice that when I feel like I'm on edge and everything's running a million miles an hour, and you know, when you feel your head's racing and I realize that this is not a good place to be one, because if I'm trying to be creative, it's just the worst kind of recipe to be in. If you want to be, you know, kind of bring your creative uh, juices to bay. So one of the things that I would do, and I do do, and I actually did it this morning is I go outside, I take a walk somewhere. Now it doesn't necessarily have to be in nature, although I'm very blessed where I am on the Isle of Man, nature's around every corner. Yeah. But I go and take a walk and I purposely slow down my walk. And so what I try to do is try to walk as slow and as likely as I can. And the reason I add likely in there, because that gives my, my thinking mind a, something to, to kind of get its, you know, its kind of grip on and, and connect to, because just walking slow sometimes is very difficult. But if you connect something to it, like, well, I want you to walk slow, but you need to be smooth and light. I mean, I guess for us as martial artists, the way that we can maybe describe that is walk like a ninja. It has this amazing, profound effect because within a couple of minutes, if you allow yourself to continuously, you know, bring that slowness in and be as light as you possibly can with your feet touching the ground to try to make no noise. In other words, could try that maybe like in a park where there's lots of leaves, try and do it in such a way that you don't hear any of the leaves rustling, right? Everything else starts slowing down. And you f- I can actually feel my, my thinking mind changing gears mm-hmm. and slowly slowing down. And that is, a, it's very, again, a very simple thing. It's not a big deal. It's not something, you know, that you need anything for just, just yourself. And you could even do it barefoot as well. You know, if you have the right environment to walk in, like a park or something, that would yeah. be equally as good. 
Nice, nice. Well, it also kind of begs the question is, why do we feel such a pressing sense of urgency in the modern world? Why do so many of it? Because here we are up against this ecological crisis. You would think that that society would pull back from that and slow down. But no, we have our foot on every accelerator pedal that we can find, you know, and we're going faster all the time. And I think that um, some of that is contagious. The sense of urgency is contagious from other people. It's driven by marketing, of course, and it's driven by ambition. We all want to be somebody, you know, you have to achieve so you can be somebody so you can be recognized and then you can get attention. And, my my friend in Yosemite Valley, Ron Kauk, he's kind of a spiritual teacher. He's a climber. Uh, he says, look, you already are somebody. <laughs> you already are a human animal. You don't need to strive so much. And I, I thought that was a great teaching from him. Yeah, I think you write on the money as well. You know, we, we're in this kind of capitalistic cycle with all these promises, right? The promises is if you achieve all of these materialistic markers, you, you know, you're a- able to, you know, get all the toys, so to speak, that yeah, you yeah. arrived and you will be happy. That's the narrative that is basically presented to us. And oh, by the way, don't take your time because you're going to get old and you won't be able to enjoy it. So now everybody's, you know, as you said, it's just really going faster and faster and faster. And if you're really honest with yourself, if, if, and I think we've all done this to some degree, where we've chased those kind of capitalistic, yeah, yeah. materialistic gains only to get to the end and realize actually it hasn't made me any happier. In fact, mm-hmm. I feel worse than when I started. Right. And so even in that sense, you could say, well, how do I become a minimalist? Right. Possible. Right. Do I need all the stuff that I have? Can I reduce some of these things? And it's interesting when you actually start doing that. Initially, there's this anxiety when you start kind of, you know, minimizing what you have. But, you know, as you continue the process, all of a sudden you start feeling a lot better. Yeah. You know, you don't have all this clutter around you. Right. And so you have the freedom to move. I mean, you know, again, you're going to go if I go into some of my friends' houses and I look at just the amount of junk they have. Right. It's like, wow. How? I mean, th- that must be how your brain looks. You know, <laughs> right. yes. And I, yes. And, you know, I don't know about you, but like for me personally and my partners like this as well. Right. If we want to do something we can't do something of importance if we're sitting in an environment that is dirty, that is cluttered, that right, is full right. of stuff, right? It just feels like you, you can't really focus on what's important. And so what we normally do is just make sure that everything is clean before we even start that, right? Because otherwise we just don't get to do anything that we want to do. So yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Yeah, and that's where the the martial arts and the dojo model come in because the classic martial art dojo is clean and orderly and neat, and that's a place where you can focus. And that's that's a simple solution that just about anybody can do in their own home environment. Mm. Make it neat, make it orderly. But this also brings up another sort of reframing idea from... uh, from our lifespan, you might say, and something I've noticed where when I was younger, I was all about speed. I wanted to climb mountains and do it really fast because it was exhilarating. It was Mm. exciting. And then later in your forties and your fifties, you start to pick up these injuries and you get some pain here and there. And at first it's a catastrophe, right? I I can't possibly be injured because that's going to compromise everything. And I I, I just can't accept it. But when you reframe it, you say, well, you know, this injury is causing me to slow down. And now I get to see the world in a new way. And that, then you almost begin to welcome these things. And there's a, a big payoff to those as well. So it's a good reframe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just the other day, I was in Norway, I was in Oslo, and I was sitting on a park bench, basically. And I was watching these birds play in the puddle of water. And it was just, you know, it's just a really cool thing to watch, right? And it just, it's just makes you makes you feel happy, just seeing that, right? And then fluttering or fluttering around and, and so forth, right? But I could see everybody else walking either through them, not even noticing that they right, even right. Did, and then they would come back afterwards, or 
just walking so fast on their phones, not even noticing anything around them. And so that I think also lends to this idea of why life seems to be speeding up because we living in a virtual reality that isn't the reality as we should experience it, right? Me sitting on that park bench, watching those birds, that is a way of slowing down. And when you slow down is exactly that. You notice a lot of things that you would normally just completely not see. And actually you start to realize that it's the little things that put a smile on your face, right? Like just watching birds put a smile on my face. And I thought it was really cool. You know, later on that week, I was just sitting outside at a cafe and a little bird decided to come sit right next to me. And that made my day, right? It was really cool. But, you know, if I was sitting there on my phone and engrossed in that, I wouldn't have noticed anything, you know? Right, right. Well, speaking of phones and this uh, theme of looking for solutions, one solution that I've discovered for me personally, I have a smartphone, I own one, but I don't take it with me a lot of times. So if I'm walking the dog, I don't take the phone. If I'm going to the grocery store, I don't take the phone. I use it like a landline. And it stays in my office for the most part. If I'm traveling, I take it with me, but I use it like a landline and that really works because now when I'm out and about, I feel free. I'm, I'm, I can engage with reality on its own terms and I don't miss much. I occasionally will miss a call, but it makes me feel a lot better. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. But my question to you is, when you first started doing it, how did it feel? Like right in the beginning. Oh, right. Yeah, you feel anxious. I I might miss something and I've got to check this thing. And it's uh, it distracts you. It it puts you in this multitasking frame of mind and also makes you rude to other people. I mean, it's... it's not a good way for society to function. And so leave it at home. I think that's a really good point, though. It does alter your mood. It makes you short with other people. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, noticed that a lot. And even in, my, in myself, you know, and I'm, I've been working really hard, exactly as you were saying, just to put it away and not to have it with me all the time. Yeah, and like you said, you know, you know sometimes, you know, maybe you miss a, miss a call, but at the end of the day, it's not life ending. The only thing that I did on my phone when I do have it around and I don't want to be interrupted by it, I have it just set that the only two calls that can come in is either from my kids or from my partner. And that's it, right? So anybody else trying to call me at that moment in time, it just, it just doesn't ring. And that's, right. that's, that's, that's a good strategy as well. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So another one I think which is really important is being more present. Right. So I think that's really important because so much of our time is spent either in the future or in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, if you just ask somebody to take a m- kind of mental diary of the day and just kind of tick off, how many times were you thinking about something that hadn't happened yet and you were worried about it, or you were thinking about something that went wrong yesterday and you were still kind of ruminating on it? I think people would be very surprised at the end of the day to realize how much of their time is spent in the future or the past with very little little of their time actually spent in the present moment. So I think learning to be more present is also something that can be done to help people just survive the chaos and complexity that we now live, live in, especially in the urban environments. Right. Yeah, that's something that shows up in conversation with other people a lot of times uh, or doesn't show up in conversation more mm-hmm. likely now because I, this is something I've noticed that conversations have become so shortened, uh, so abrupt, so informational now that people often aren't present really at all. You don't hear much in the, in the way of questions or curiosity mm-hmm. from other people. And so that's, that's, I think, a good place to begin is, hey, can we improve the quality of our conversation by showing more interest in other people? That is, that would be a good um, step backwards, in a sense. I mean, it would be a, a beneficial step backwards. Yeah. And then one of, one of the problems, of course, when we talk about, you know, mindful communication, and the reason why we don't see a lot of it is that when people are talking to somebody else, you know, or at least when, when the other person's talking back to them, 
they are not fully present with what that person is saying. They're having a dialogue within their own thinking mind and, you know, whatever, preempting what this person's going to say. If they say this, then I'm going to say that because, you know, there's kind of this aspect of always needing to win in every conversation and not just being able to be open to what arises, right? And so that is also important to be present because when you are present with somebody, ironically, you actually hear more. When you're present, you miss a lot of the fine details and that could be the difference between getting into an argument or not. Right. And once again, this is where the martial arts make a, a perfect model, a perfect metaphor for conversation. Because you, what you're doing in the dojo is trying to develop a rapport mm-hmm. with your training partner. And in conversation, you're trying to develop a rapport in, in a verbal manner. And that's the goal, I think. The goal is not to win the the conversation or to show how smart you are. (laughs) The goal is rapport. Yeah. So, you know, again, what people will ask me often is like, okay, you talk about being more present. Where would be a starting point? What is something that I could do? And my simple advice to them is learn to focus on your breathing. And specifically, what I would suggest is focus on your out-breath. So try to keep your attention on your out-breath you know, allow the in-breath just to come in as it naturally would, and then keep your focus on the out So the focus continuously is always orienting towards the out for two reasons. This is my experience and, you know, partly my own personal research is that I found is that when you are breathing in, you can still think about stuff. But when you're breathing out, it's really hard to think about anything. And you mm. could actually test that and try it out. It's kind of an interesting phenomenon. Then added to that is that we know through research and medical science, because again, you know, myself and you are not against the modern world. I mean, you need to be able to draw what's positive and know what to leave behind that's causing you, you know, strife. But we know through medical science that when you focus on your outbreath, you are engaging your parasympathetic nervous system. So that's that calming effect of your autonomic nervous system. So if you happen to be stressed out, and this is the thing I try to explain to people is that if you're stressed out and you know you're stressed out and you, you know, you're inside and you're having a conversation with yourself and you're telling yourself to relax, to calm down, how well does that actually work for you? And most people will agree it doesn't work very well. Right. And the, the reason it doesn't work very well is because actually it's the wrong language. That's not the language of the autonomic nervous system, right? So the reason you're feeling not relaxed is because your sympathetic nervous system is running hot. Now you try to tell yourself to calm down and relax. It just doesn't work. It doesn't switch that off. It doesn't change the way that you are feeling. One way to change that is by you know, correcting the language that you're using. And the language of the autonomic nervous system is twofold. There's two things you can do. One is by understanding how to breathe correctly in that moment in time, because that's Mm -hmm. the language that the autonomic nervous system knows, and also how to engage your body appropriately. So in respect to what I'm talking about is that when you focus on your out-breath, you are engaging your parasympathetic nervous system. So if you're running hot and your sympathetic nervous system is engaged, when you start focusing on the out-breath, you bring in that parasympathetic nervous system which then brings you back to homeostasis, right? It helps you to create equilibrium with inside your embodied state. And that's very, very powerful. And that, again, is something that's very simple, right? We, we take breathing for granted until we can't breathe. Then we realize how important it really is. But, I mean, you can speak to this, and you know this very well, is that the vast majority of people have suboptimal breathing. Most people breathe from their sternum up, right, because they're anxious all the time. You know, if you you go to a business meeting and sometimes I have to, you know, not that I would choose to do that, but I'm sitting in in a meeting, maybe as a consultant, and I look around the room and I notice how everybody's breathing from their sternum up and very short, shallow breaths, Mm -hmm. which tells me that they are stressed out and their sympathetic nervous system is running hot. Right. What I've tried to do sometimes in these meetings is say, guys, 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 hold on a second. Let's just stop where we are because we're getting nowhere and we're talking over each other. Let's everybody just take in a deep breath and exhale three times and let's come back to the conversation. I mean, I'm sure most of them sitting there thinking, you know, this guy's crazy, but I just find that that really, really works. And I know it works because the science says that it works. And I know from my own personal experience that it does. And I think that's just an amazing, simple tool that anybody can apply in in any part of their, their, their day, right? 
Yeah, yeah. And that reminds me of an experience I had in massage school where we did um, a whole weekend workshop on abdominal massage. And the mm-hmm. idea here is that when the when the diaphragm contracts, it's, it's like a dome in the center of your body. When it contracts, you massage the internal organs. And there, there's a nervous system there, the enteric nervous system, mm-hmm. that responds to that. And it talks via the vagus nerve back up to the brain. But uh, if you ever get a chance to have an abdominal massage, and you can even do it on yourself, it's extremely powerful. Mm. And the body loves that kind of thing. The um, the guts are not entirely running the show, but they, they have a powerful voice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, more and more, we know that, right? We know that the biome in your intestines, for example, has yep. huge implications when we talk about anxiety and depression. If that's out of whack, then that's going to that's gonna also affect how you feel and how you think. So, again, it comes back to, you know, eating properly and eating healthy. And we've said that before. I think we said it in the first episode is that just get to the close to where the food came from. And that's really all you need to be doing. Again, all these weird, fancy diets, I just don't buy into any of them. I mean, the, the closer it is to where it came from makes it makes it good enough for me right and i don't really stress out too much of course i am a vegetarian and i have been for a while but that was more of a personal consciousness choice because i just you know couldn't after watching these programs and documentaries on how animals are treated i just i couldn't bring myself to doing it now of course i would say this with a caveat that of course if i was out and i actually had to hunt for my survival i would you know eat but then I know that it's sustainable and I know where it's come from, you know. Now, that's just my personal choice, right? But I think that, that that's that's an important point as well. Yeah, yeah. Getting as close to the origin as possible is... Um, yeah, it's the key to health, right? Right, right. Yeah. Then another thing that I think is important, and this one took me a while to kind of figure out because um, it's very hard, especially for guys, is that you need to be more compassionate to yourself. <laughs> you know, so right. life, life is tough enough. You don't also need to be hard on yourself as well, right? And that I think, you know, just having compassion for yourself and recognizing that life is hard and, you know, just being okay with the fact that sometimes you struggle and you'll figure a way out, I think is super important as well because, you know, especially when we talk about guys, and this is my experience, is that guys never want to admit when they're struggling. They don't want to talk about their emotions. They don't want to talk about their mental state. Um, they're so hard on themselves. I mean, I was as well, right? There was a there's a time there not so long ago when I was struggling with depression. And I just thought the reason I was struggling so much was because I just had lost my edge in or you know, in in my ability to deal with everyday life. But it was more complex than that. And it wasn't until I started being more compassionate with myself and allowing myself that freedom to just be with my my experience that I started to realize, actually, you know what? There's a whole lot of other things going on here. It's not just only that, right? Sure, so sure. I, think, I think personal compassion is really important. And of course, extending that to other people as well. Right. And then just realizing what culture, how culture influences men in general and how it pushes us to extremes of of this macho non-expressive behavior non-compassionate uh type of behavior it's our our culture is kind of an outlier in that respect and other cultures you you could very easily grow up in a different culture that had a different idea about masculinity. And that's important to keep in mind as well. We are really hard on men and that's uh, we're expected to be invulnerable. We're expected to carry the heavy load. We're expected not to show any signs of weakness. And that is not a healthy environment to, to work with. Yeah, and that's what I also meant by being compassionate to others, right? Because there's this this kind of, you know, you, you get judged if you don't meet whatever the criteria is of that culture, of what that culture says, and for example, a man should be. And when you're not meeting that criteria, then they judge you. And that makes things even worse, right? And that's right. just not recognizing that everybody struggles and everybody goes through hard times. And actually, what we really need in those moments in time is connection 
and the ability to speak to somebody who is not going to judge us. And we can just talk openly and freely about where we are and what we're experiencing. And the person you're talking to doesn't have to necessarily have any answers. They just have to be open to actually listening. Right, right. Well, you know, this is a theme that came up in a book by Sebastian Younger called mm, Tribe. Tribes. And it, it's fascinating because he talks about these, um, these veterans coming back from war and how the, the, the environment, the culture that they come back to makes a huge difference in their ability to heal. And we don't treat our veterans that well. And they are not coming back to a communal environment, but in traditional societies, the warriors would come back and they would have a very different experience. Yeah, which reminds me of just something I heard the other day. We're talking about, you know, I was listening to somebody talking about, you know, mental health and they're saying, stop asking people what's wrong with them, but ask them what has happened to them. Yes, yes. I, I saw that quip as well, and it, mm. it's it's ideal, yeah, yeah, because we're so quick to uh, to take it on ourselves. If I'm feeling bad, there must be something wrong with me as a person, as mm. an individual, as a as an organism. But no, <laughs> and there's a story yeah. there, right? And I mean, yeah. that's that's knowing the story can then reframe things and begin to allow a person to realize that actually much of what might have happened to them was actually out of their own control. It wasn't right. because of them. It was just stuff happening outside of them that led to where they are now. And that's really that idea of, you know, asking somebody what happened to them, you know, stop telling people what's wrong with them or stop asking people to tell, tell you what's wrong with them. You know, you know, what happened to you? Tell me the story. And I think that's where story becomes very powerful. And as you've spoken about as well in your books, you know, storytelling used to be a very big part of our, our kind of indigenous cultures, right? For very important reasons, because it was a, it was a method of dealing with and working through trauma amongst other things, right? Yeah, 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 towards understanding. But now story has become entertainment mm. and we have a, a million stories to choose from. We don't have one unifying narrative that holds our culture together. And so that's yet one more instance of um, our alien environment, you know, and, and how challenging it really is. Have some compassion. Yeah. Mm. So then my, it's kind of my final point that I'm thinking about, you know, just as things that people can do. This is kind of how I try to approach every situation, right? You know, just before I do anything, I think to myself, if what I'm about to do, is that going to harm another person, either mentally, emotionally, or spiritually? And if it's not, then go ahead and do it, right? It's kind of like my maxim for how I live my life. You know, I want to do this. But if I do this, is it going to harm anybody in the process of doing it, right? Like I said, either be that mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. If not, then I feel, you know, fine with actually going ahead with it. And I think that's the thing, too, is that people don't think about the consequences of their action, right? Mm -hmm. And then they wonder why people get so angry and pissed off with them because they do things without thinking about the consequences to other people. And that's just... That's, I think that's just what it should be to be a human animal is that we consider other people. And that doesn't stop you from doing things and achieving things that you want to. But, you know, there's something to be said in doing things and achieving things that in the end will actually harm other people. And we just look at just our leadership as an example, right? These leaders make all these decisions about what's going to happen going to war and so forth. It's very easy to do it from your ivory tower where you don't have to engage with the, with the chaos and the death and all the other things that come with it and you know, put these young people out into the world to go and fight for something that they don't really understand and wouldn't want to be a part of otherwise. You know, that's exactly my point is that you know, we talk about leaders. Leaders should spend more time doing exactly that. Right Before they make a decision, they should ask, if I make this decision, Will it harm anyone? And when I say anyone, I'm not just saying people. I mean all sentient beings, right? Mm -hmm. Including Gaia, our our home, right? Because that then will 
you know, direct where they drive their, their action to. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. But that's not how most people operate, especially if you look at the corporate world. It's about, it's all about, you know, making money, right? Yeah. It's all about profit and to hell with the consequences. And, and that's, that's, that's a, maybe another point just to consider, right? Go ahead, do what you want to do, move to where you want to go, but do it in such a way that it doesn't harm anybody mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. That's a great place to begin. And that's just paying attention to our our power in the world. A lot of us are, I think, quick to say that we are powerless. And I know a lot of people grow up with that assumption that we are powerless. But really, no, we're always touching the world. And there's always ripple effects. There's always cascading consequences. And we may not know what those are. But you can always bring your best self to it and do the best you can to touch the world. So. Mm. I think what I what I notice is, and as I'm traversing the globe, is there's this lack of conscientiousness, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like everybody's on their own mission and to hell with everybody else, right? I mean, yeah. it's really interesting. Like in, in a place like, say, where I was now, Norway, and this happened in Denmark too, where you would think that they would have a much better understanding of what it means to be conscientious. It wouldn't be uncommon for people just to literally walk right through you, right? Like, like you don't, not even there. I can't tell you how many times myself and my partner made that comment. It's like, wow, like people don't even try to move out the way. Like you have people moving towards you. You're trying to move out the way like you would because you're conscientious. There's no even a little bit of action to try to move out the way. It's just like, bam, straight through you. And that's what I mean. It's like, you yeah, know, I, yeah. I'm always of the opinion is that even in the small things, and I think we don't give credit enough to the mundane, right? The little things like that, as an example, mm-hmm. how you treat people in the mundane experiences is ultimately a reflection of who you fundamentally are as a human animal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a keen insight into how you actually perceive yourself. And to me, that's not healthy. That's not an, 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 you know, an expression of health when people are doing things like that. But maybe I'm wrong, but that's kind of my, my, my perspective on, on this. Right. No, I think what we've seen throughout the 20th century and now into the 21st is this normalization of narcissism, where mm. it's, it's now considered acceptable to focus entirely on yourself and your own needs and your own interests. And that is also historically abnormal that's a weird culture that uh, that supports that and that that's an insight that i think we can work with because it, once you realize that that's abnormal then you can go the other way yeah i think you know people listening to this could do themselves a world of good if they went and did some research on for example hunter-gatherer communities and when i mean hunter-gatherer communities that haven't been influenced to a large degree by the western world i mean as they were in their natural state And if you look at how they operated as a society, it's exactly what you're saying, Frank. I mean, the way they operated is not anywhere like we operate today. If anything, we're in direct opposition to that. I mean, Mm -hmm. their entire existence was about thinking about other people. It was about collaboration. They were leaderless. They didn't have leaders. They didn't have needed a leader. If everybody's on the same page... Of course, you know, some people had better skills in certain things than others. And when the time was appropriate, you would ask that person if they were a better hunter, for example, and we were struggling and we were were starving, you would send out your best hunter or hunters, right? But if they came back and they wanted to control that society, they wanted to take over because like, look, now we fed you, two things would happen. Either they would basically mock them. Mm -hmm. And this, this this is actually, you know, been historically... Um, you know, presented like, as fact, right? They would mock them or, or they would ostracize them and ask them to, to exit that society. Now, knowing that those are the two consequences, most people wouldn't do that, right? They would right. relinquish their power as soon as their power was no longer needed. So yeah. Yeah. we've lost all of that. And that's the interesting thing to me is that for much of human existence, as far as we can see, we were nothing like we are today, where we are selfish, self-obsessed, you know, as you said, narcissistic, driven by gains of things that we don't actually need. Most of the stuff that people say they need, they don't need actually to live happy and fulfilled life. But um, 
that's consumerism and that's the whole capitalistic model that what people don't realize is that doesn't give a shit about you or me. <laughs> right. It's on its own agenda, right? It's it's on its own it's on its own kind of trajectory, and the the way that it's going is basically one hundred percent destruction of this planet. I, I agree. Yeah, unless yeah. we find another way to do things, right? But yeah. the objective of the capitalistic materialistic model is not to see everybody's lives improve. Of course, some people have. But if you look at the overall consequences to mental health, as an example, I can make the argument that it hasn't been very successful. Yeah, I, I agree with that whole assessment. It's um, and we're real. We're in a real difficult position right now because we've we've invested liberally and figuratively in the capitalist model, and it's hard to see a way out at this point. Mm. So to ground the conversation as we come to the end, Frank, yeah. you know, I think the bottom line is, and I, I'm guessing we agree on this, is that each of us has to find a way to reinvoke or reconnect to our human animal. There, mm-hmm. there are many things that we could do, but the things we talked about on this um, pod, podcast or podcast or vlog, however you want to describe it, right, is to simplify things, especially in your own mind when you think about problems, think of simple solutions because that's what hunter-gatherers would do, for example, find a simple solution to a complex problem because they didn't have a lot of resources, right? right? Second to that is to slow down, Mm -hmm. be more present, be more compassionate to yourself. And my final point was, you know, think before you do anything, if that's going to harm anyone, and when we say anyone, we mean fellow human animals and other sentient beings and the planet at large, is this going to harm any of those mentally, emotionally, or spiritually? And if that is the case, then either A, don't do it, or find another way to achieve what you set yourself out to achieve. Those are nice. Uh, I like that list. Cool. I would add one more, one more sure. thing, and that's um, to trust your body. Because um, unless you've trained or unless you've read adventure stories about people out doing, you know, outrageous things in the natural world, a lot of people grow up, they don't trust their body at all. And, and so that leads to alienation and distress and anxiety and everything else. But the body is unbelievably capable and resilient and Mm. there's plenty of examples in history of this and so even if you're not feeling well if you're not feeling like you're up to the task your body is always working to make it work yeah and exactly you know just building off that is that you have everything you need in your body to achieve what you want to achieve yeah 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 Cool. Awesome. Well, that was great. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of meet up again for the, the third episode. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, real pleasure.